Like I've often thought like, who's gonna be the first person to paint a plein air landscape on Mars? Like it, it's gonna happen, right? And I'm, I guarantee you it's gonna look like somebody was painting in Utah. Welcome to episode six of Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. In this episode, we're talking to Jim Butler, an artist who works with both paint and glass. I'm Clarity Haynes, and this is Kate Hawes. Painter Jim Butler makes work that is strange, idiosyncratic, and beautiful. He creates large paintings of small, colorful, blown glass maquettes he makes himself, which he calls characters. Butler lost his home and studio to a fire in the late 80s, an event that changed the course of his artistic production. After the majority of his work from that decade was lost, he began to collect objects from stoop sales and make paintings of them, eventually realizing he needed to make and mold his own subject matter. Recently, he has added a third step to the process. He takes digital photos of the sculpture and then paints from the photographic image. His work references the technological and otherworldly. From far away, the paintings look seamless and slick, but close up, it's clear that the artist cares very much about the evidence of the hand through brushstroke and surface. Clarity and I visited Jim in his studio in Ridgewood, Queens. The paintings start or are actually modeled on glass sculptures that I make. You know, they're over here. I'm, I don't think you guys have, I, I certainly never right. show these. Yeah. I never show anything that I make that is, is a source of imagery. So these are things you've painted. Yeah, these are made specifically to be maquettes for paintings. Okay. They're characters. Okay. And I, I, I don't think of them as sculpture. Mm -hmm. So if they're made for paintings, I'm always, you know, when I'm blowing the glass, I'm actually looking at this thinking, oh, I'm gonna be from a particular vantage okay. point. So unlike sculpture, it. which you view, you wanna think about walking around it and all the different, the 360 degrees. Totally. You're not mm -hmm. thinking 360. Absolutely not, and in fact, one of the weird things is that because it's glass and because it is 3D, even though I'm making it for a painting, you know, all kinds of oddities occur visually, right? Like if I turn it this way, I'm picking up all this refraction that I never could possibly plan for or anticipate. They seem so specific, like they have stories to them. Uh, they do have stories. And, and in fact, my paintings ever since I started painting really are about stories. You know, I went to grad school at Indiana University in the late 70s, and I went there because there were artists from Chicago who taught there. And I had come from the East Coast, from RISD, and I just really wanted to get off of the East Coast. I didn't, you know, know anything other than at that time what you could read in magazines. And I dimly was perceiving this sort of really weird energy in yeah. Chicago. I mean, California was, I don't know, a distant dream, I guess. Anyway, um, so I met some very influential artists to me. So that sense of storytelling and imagery as narration, as metaphor, has always stayed with me. Who did you study with? Uh, in grad school, there were two artists, uh, two painters who were kind of dominant in the program at that time. A guy named Jim McGarrell, who in the 60s was huge. I think he won two Guggenheims. I mean, anyway, really interesting painter. And um, Robert Barnes who is a phenomenal painter. Among other things, I think Bob was Duchamp's last assistant. Uh, wow. So, yeah, and he knew Mata and uh, Max Ernst. And so there was this, you know, there was a level of surrealism mm -hmm. and the 
the uses of imagery were wide open at that time, that makes, which was that not the case so on the East Coast. That makes so much sense now that you say Chicago, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh yeah, the weirdness. Yeah, although I'm not a Chicago, I'm, I'm not a Chicago artist. Don't get me wrong. Right, but like, you really sought it out. I did actually. I did in a kind of you know when you're that age, kind of an unconscious way. But yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So I was at RISD from '74 to '78, and uh, that was the period of time that the Glass Program was being formed by Chihuly and Jamie Carpenter, whom I knew. Um, I was very young, but it was clear there was this really intense energy going on. Many of my friends who were in painting left painting to go to the glass program. Hank Adams, who's actually the director of the Glass Center of America down in New Jersey, uh, would be one of them. He's made tremendous work over a long career. And painting and glass, I've always thought are really flip sides of the same coin. They, they use the same materials. They're all about color suspended in space. In a sense, they're concocted out of whole cloth. You know, you've got this molten sand and colorant and oil paint. It's the same chemistry. It's just suspended in linseed oil. And then this image develops. This image becomes, you know, plastic and, vi- and visible. I always think of glass and, and light through glass as being the most brilliant form of color. You know, I used to have a friend who was a mosaic artist, and I was so jealous because it's just like, how do you get that kind of brilliance with paint? But I look at these paintings, and I, I think that that seems to be your concern, and they're really, they are brilliant, and they give you that feeling of light and of colored glass and of light passing through color. Well, thank you for saying that. I. I got my own internal frustrations about it because I, I have to actually suppress my mind from thinking, oh, I'm going to make this painting and it's going to be, the illusion is going to be transformative more so than, than glass is captivating. And it's just, they're just two different ways of yeah. using color, you know? Uh, the the yeah. light always passes through glass. The light hits an opaque surface or barely translucent in oil paint. And there are certain limitations. But with oil paint, it's about something a lot more than just that to me. I mean, I'm very much a painter because of the, it's the record of the hand. And that's why I paint. They've been brought up to a level where the brush strokes are not exactly the first thing you notice. You, yeah. I mean, if you look closely, I could probably pick apart some brush strokes. Yeah. You know, brush strokes, are they sort of more evocative of the painter's self? Or is there a certain denial of that in your painting style? Like, how do you think? I want you to it's answer, a great question. answer that. No, how do you stand on the yeah. use of the brush stroke? The nature of any material manipulated by an individual's hand is unique. It's why art students, their sensibilities are instantly vivid because they start to draw and it's right in front of you. So for me, I've been thinking the past year about paintings which are indecipherable in in how they're made. Like for example, Jean-Dominique Ang. It's really quite mysterious how those paintings are made. There's no brush stroke, there's no traceable handiwork, but this thing is made. And that's a profound confrontation intellectually, you know, for the viewer. Uh, I think that's why his paintings are so magnetic and continue to be. It's not obviously the only way to work. So the other side of that I've been thinking is, you know, the nature of, in this case, using a photograph as a source. Like, how can you bring something new to the perception of a photograph? 
that's actually what I'm wrestling with uh, in these paintings. And sometimes some of them have been quite tight. Others have been actually quite thin, which is not a way that I've, my career traditionally have been working, but very thin, uh, almost like watercolor. Others are being built up and sanded down. Uh, so it's varies. I'm searching around. Yeah. If your paintings were an object, it would be a pretty highly polished object. You know, there wouldn't be like chisel marks on the object, for instance. Right. And then I thought, well, you're painting actual glass pieces that are you're using as maquettes. And glass is by nature transparent and smooth. It doesn't show, it may be globby or like pulled or stretched yeah. or blown or bubbled, but it's not showing actual brush marks as an object. Maddening, this, like, isn't it? slickness to it. <laughs> you, yeah. yeah. It's really confounding. <laughs> no, I know. It's like, how does it do that? And you look at it as a, like as a painter, you go, oh, I'd love to paint that. You look at it and you go, there's nothing there. There's right. just an yeah. optical sensation. On one hand, you know, blowing glass is like, I think about it as drawing in three dimensions. So, you know, you take a piece of charcoal and you're hatching something just on this arena of a white surface. But you still have this tactile material. When glass anneals and it comes out of the kiln, it's like, how did that happen? Right. You have this optical experience that's frozen. Because right. it was moving. It was. And it was fluid. And now it's not. Yeah. And now it's not. So it's a record of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Weird stuff. Now that you're working mostly from photographs, it's more like you have a document and the information is there and it's not going to change and maybe you have a little more control over the perceptual process? Or? I think Chuck Close said it really well about the photograph and painting. He said, you look at the photograph, you don't need anything else, it's all there. And certainly that meant one thing for him, obviously, but I think it's a pretty great statement because, yeah, it's a record and it's a source, but so is a tree outdoors or right. an apple on a table. So how does the painter bring a new level of invention? How do they add to the language of painting? The photograph is so misleading as a source for a painted image because one thinks, oh, it's an objective, sealed completion. Or it's not going to change like an apple might. Totally. And you're, even your physical distance from it. Right. You know, so I work sometimes from small images, sometimes one-to-one. -one in the same painting, trying to yeah, experience some, some of that disjuncture. I'm curious if there's anybody else working right now or in the past who has had that specific relationship to the photograph that you feel you have or? I, you know, I think about a couple of artists. One is Thomas Aikens, really, because he used photographs. Degas also. They both were making the photograph conform to other ideas about conventions of making an image. So with Aikens, you know, many of them are brown with one isolated event of shocking color. And I have this theory that he was actually just imitating the convention then of hand painting or hand tinting monochromatic photographs, you know, album and prints. And that's what you would do if you were doing that. Um, now, looking back, it seems like one of the weirdest things you would do in a painting, you know, this brown atmosphere with this isolated red dress and nothing else is in color. 
Right, and he also uses focus in such a way, you know, like the nose of a figure will be in focus and the ears won't. Yep. So you have that sense of photographic space. Absolutely, and in fact, at that time, you know, if you were working up close in a portrait, that is exactly what would happen. I mean, you can still make that effect, but, you know, the view camera and so on, you're gonna get this radical shift in in depth of field. So actually an artist, just a huge hero of mine, always has been, is Via Selmans. In fact, I think she has a show coming up next month at Matthew Marks. Yeah, it's really great. I haven't seen her work for many, many years. No, the paintings that she made that really have always been very important to me are the the earlier paintings when she was living in Venice. It's a great painting from a, a small box camera image that she shot. She put the camera, like an Instamatic, uh, on the dashboard of her car driving down the freeway. And... It's just an incredible image. I mean, just translated into painting. It's not a photorealist painting. It's not a naturalistic painting. It just, it grapples with the wonderment of looking at an image. So the scissors, was that like an object painting from the 90s? Yeah. That was the first painting of that series. It was 89. Mm-hmm. And I had, uh, my apartment in Long Island City had burned down in 87. The fire was so big, it burned four buildings. It made the, the front page of the B section of the Times. They had a photograph, wow. you know, uh, looking from across the river. Anyway. When I lost all the stuff that was, you know, the apartment and the studio. You, did you lose all that work? I lost, I lost a good part of it, yeah, I did, from the 80s, yeah. Wow. In fact, I just had a show at Tibor Dinaj. A few of them were in the basement of that building. There was water damage, but I did save a few. Like, that's a huge event of loss. You know, there's more artists than you. Loss. There's a lot of artists who's, who's right. studio, well, you after know? Sandy, I yep. mean, yeah. I mean, it's... it's yeah, and it hits people. Talk about being like how you, you know, think about things sort of, you know, psychologically for yourself. It really hit me. I, I'm somebody who really connects with the world through tactile objects. I mean, it's, that's what those paintings were all about. And I still collect things on a unfortunately too big a basis. I, you know, I, I'm like a goldfish. I got to keep filling up space. But at any rate, uh, I had a temporary studio for on 10th Street in the East Village. And um, I would walk from the place I was, the sublet down on Pitt Street, and I would walk up to the studio on 10th Street. And on Sunday morning, there would be stoop sales. And you know, I'm a big flea market person, so I would buy new objects, new things. And I remember being like hyper discerning. I mean, it was as if I was acquiring something for the Louvre, you know, it's like, and like, I, oh, what I, what I need, do I need that? You know, it was like a little plastic shoe. And, um, and I started to make little drawings that, that summer uh, of those objects as one by one rebuilding my sense of identity. So it came out of having lost everything in a yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. And and so it was a new it was a new chapter in your creative life. What what was your work like before? Like what was your show at Tibor Dinesh? Uh The show at Tibor's that in '86, they were full on surrealist 
levitating figures in, in, a, in, a, in landscape context. They were painted from kind of these abstract gestures that would start the painting's compositional arrangement, and then I would plug in different paintings of these figures, and then I would invent these landscapes, and they would evolve and change over the year or so that I painted them, like wildly, you know? Kind of like living theater. There were certain religious overtones to them as well. And they were documented, I hope? You have images? Oh, uh, I do have, yeah, I do okay. have documents, nice. yeah, definitely. Yep. That's good. Yep. I've, yeah, I've always been pretty good about that. We want to take a minute to say thank you for all the support you have given our podcast. Every download, every share, every listen means a lot. If you have questions, ideas, or feedback, let us know. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And now, back to our studio visit with Jim Butler. There is an element in these of a figure. It's weird, because I know that they're objects. Mm -hmm. Totally. They're, they are most definitely characters. The object paintings initially, as you know, I described it, where they were things I would find or buy, or then they became things that I would make. They were transparent pieces of plastic that got cobbled together, or old painted plastic models that I would disassemble and then remake my own way. Anyway, so in making these in glass, I really was after not only a way to make my own characters, like narrative figures, but also um, objects. And then most importantly, to have the viewer not understand the origin of where that came from. That's something that I've been, really had to kind of work out intellectually, like even why that was important to me. I, I really want people to, I'm, I'm after the viewer making an immediate identification with their projection of who a character might be, rather than, oh, I saw that somewhere, or I, I had one of those, or this was yeah. something that I can imagine being. You yeah, know? like not being able to locate it in our yeah, frame Yeah, it's not of, of us. It's mm -hmm. not of us. Like I've often thought, like, who's going to be the first person to paint a plein air landscape on Mars? Like, it, it's going to happen, right? And what a weird idea. And I'm, I guarantee you it's going to look like somebody was painting in Utah. Like, they're going to use every convention of painting on Earth. So how is it then do you reinvigorate the idea of painting a figurative, representational, you know, narrative character where you don't even know where it came from? It's off world. I was just thinking about California. You said something like, you know, you went to the Midwest from the East Coast, but California was beyond, like something untouchable <laughs> or something. And I was thinking- Still is. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Do you, do you, have you gone there and Oh yeah. My, my, since the 80s, you know, yeah. uh, that was my first trip to oh, California. that's right, your sister's-in-law lived there, My right? sister-in-law lives there, yeah, uh, both of them. And, um, but I, you know, I'm just the typical East Coast person. Yeah. I get off the plane, you know, and every time it's like a dream. You know, I realize you, know, you get off the plane and, and you look around and there's people whizzing by on the freeway and you just think, everyone here, like this is the world. Like beyond the mountains out there, that's just an abstraction. It doesn't really matter. You know, there's weather happening somewhere, you know? And right. I'm just, I'm just amazed. It's just, it's, it's kind of thrilling. It's like going to some other place that's not quite the earth, you know? Right, like Never Never Land Like Never Never Land. I was thinking of like Finnish fetish, you know, California, yeah. uh, Los Angeles art, that kind of chrome, perfect, smooth. And I feel like your, your work has that feeling. 
And then I thought of like the Harry Who from mm -hmm. Chicago. And then I thought, oh, Finnish fetish meets the Harry Who. Well, that's a great combo. <laughs> I, so that, that, that's an awesome combo. The Finnish fetish people, I bought a, uh, this was an auction. I got it for nothing. This wonderful cast resin piece from the late 60s by a very underknown artist from Southern California. And what's really interesting is that it was, the pla it was plastics there that allowed all of that to happen. You know, right, and, right. The, and I mean, they were, I don't know, it's just really quite amazing. Think about Larry Bell and, you know, these incredible, enormous objects at scale yeah. and weight, incredible density. It's amazing they were making that work in the 70s when technology was not under control in ways that it is now. I didn't know that work at the time, but uh, if I had a fantasy is that you could actually blow glass on an 18 foot scale which is totally impossible, you can't do really? it. Really? No, it's totally impossible. What's gotta... the limit for blowing glass about? Friends of mine have made, I mean, they're world-class glass blowers and they are constantly trying to push the limit of scale. I've seen like the biggest Christmas ornament ever blown, I think, it, I don't know, it's probably like four feet in diameter. Wow. It takes like eight people to actually manipulate. Yeah, it's Yeah, crazy. glass is pretty heavy. Very heavy, sand. So you are interested in working on a bigger scale or? With um, glass? I think or... as a fantasy, because I really, I think it's one of the great things about painting for me. What's why, I, really, one of the reasons I do paint is because I'm able to make all of these things at any scale that I want as a painting. I really want people to think, oh, what if? So you look at a painting and one's mind can at least pose a hypothetical. What if something were this big? I think paint, that's, that's really unique to painting. You're, so you're in, in a painting, you're doing um, what you can in, in three-dimensional space. You're taking these tiny glass figurines and making them huge. Right. And it's kind of like Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, right. I look at a flower, nobody has time to look at it because it's so small, but if I make it really big, right. people will look. Well, I have this idea that if painting today has a close corollary, in this culture right now, it would actually be contemporary fiction because painting doesn't really function, you know, as a... It's certainly not a record of the physical anymore. It's not a, an official sort of documentary endeavor anymore. Painting has this, I don't know, this ability now to be like fiction, the place where the mind can surrender itself to the whims of an author. And that's, that's powerful. Did you have any art teachers along the way in high school or in, or in art school that were really significant to you? I went to Catholic school and uh, there were, you know, it's like any high school, there was kind of a cadre of committed uh, high school artists and that was great. Um, but you know, it was the early 70s, so it was a pretty wild time. I went to, I remember getting out of high school and it was kind of a choice between acting or art, uh, thinking that it was kind of either or. I journeyed around to a couple of different places. I went to Cooper Union. I applied there. I got in. I came to New York. At that time, I was li living outside Philadelphia. And uh, I got off the bus, and they told me I had to find a place to live. 
And that was... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that you was like, they handed me a sheet oh of paper, gosh. like a mimeographed old-style sheet of paper. I was like, how do you do that? Like, I didn't have a clue. Oh so I wandered around the East Village in 1973 going like, wow. <laughs> I don't know if I... I don't know how you get a place to live. How old were you? Uh, 17. So anyway, I, I went up to Providence to uh, RISD, to the Ron School of Design. And um, I remember calling my mom after she got home from work. And uh, she goes, well, how's it going? I said, it's great. I said, this place makes total sense to me. And that was that. It was a great, great experience, great teachers. And it was wide open. And the last year of that, I was in Italy, the RISD European Honors Program, oh. which is basically is about 15 Siena? students. No, it's in Rome. So I did that. That was an amazing year. Yeah, and then came back to the U.S. and went out to Indiana. And was painting encouraged there at the time? Um, it, was, it was wide open. Yeah. You know, yeah, was it encouraged? Yeah. It was what you made it. I mean, and, and the year I was in school, there were huge numbers of really, really talented people who were just, they wanted to paint paintings. They wanted to figure that out. Yeah. All right, Bill Komoski was in my class, Judy Glantzman. I mean, at least these paintings, I, I very much want them and I would say, oh, out of time. But what I mean is out of chronological time. You can place them in, the, in that way, but they're not constrained by that. Right. But I mean, they're sort of almost out of language. Mm-hmm. You know, just words don't feel like they really... Oh, that's great. ...describe them. That's, or I have to think... That's one of right. the nicest things someone said in a while to me. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe I just have to... It forces the viewer to, like, spend some time on it. You know what I mean? It's not like... Well, like, for instance, the scissor painting. Yeah. You pull it out. Scissors! Scissors. Yeah, it's very grounding. I mean, this yeah. is a really primal thing. I mean, it's like yeah. the naming of an object. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I know you called this something like Dusty Buffalo. Sandy. Sorry, Sandy <laughs> Buffalo. But even that, it's like, if I hadn't heard that, and that's bizarre. Sandy Buffalo is bizarre. Yeah. There's your, re your referencing of contemporary fiction. Right. About the interesting word combinations. But without that, without hearing Sandy Buffalo, yeah. I have to th spend some time letting things go a little bit. I've always been fascinated the way jazz musicians name tunes because it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's like so elusive to whatever state of mind they might have that I certainly am not privy to, that that becomes this word association. Yeah. You know, and I guess maybe it's like that. I, it's I'm, like poetry or something. I yeah, mean, it's, I, but I'm also pretty like slippery putting... about titles too. I don't, they're not super important to me. I guess maybe if there's an element of perversity that I have internally, it's to do something that's difficult, but it's the, it was the avenue to go down faced with basically monumental absurdity of the way we've been concretizing and defining everything that we do. Yeah. I was thinking about what we're talking about with gender, and except for that one there, which looks like it represents a, a female figure. It is. It's called Stylish Woman. Okay. Yeah, and that one, that, is, that one is an actual title. That would Okay. Read, yeah. But, but most of them are, are, if they symbolize figures, they're definitely ambiguous gender. Right. In a way, language seems like it belongs to the realm of putting things in categories, and mm -hmm. that's why we're so obsessed with language and gender right yeah. now. It's like you're doing that thing of like painting every detail of something, like this is going to be a chair, this is what it symbolizes, except the thing you're painting is not a thing we know. No. 
No, it's not a thing you know. It's sort of like, like I was saying about Mars. Yeah. And painting on plein air and Mars. Like, right. it will happen. And then it's going to be like, why did you do that? Like, right. is it really necessary that we record the peculiar sky of Mars in oil paint? I mean, maybe so. I mean, it all depends on the artist. But, but still, in terms of like a sort of philosophical sort of like take on this, what, where are we going? And what's useful and what's not? Or what might not be useful now, but maybe, and I don't know, maybe it will be useful leaping ahead a couple of steps. It's, it's unknown. I don't, I certainly don't There's know. definitely something unsettling about these. And it makes me think too about the idea of the cyborg and the sort of constructed body or like this amorphous fluid idea of who we are. Like looking at that one over there, I can see the face, but I can mm -hmm. also see that it looks like pinched metal, mm -hmm. you know, and it's physical and it just looks like somebody is just trying to construct a, mm -hmm. a, a um, like Frankenstein or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't have a painting here, it's in, it's in Sweden, but I had made a painting of the two brides of Frankenstein that were using the 1950s as a sort of their notion of the way what you're talking about mutates and becomes phantasmagorical, you know? Mm -hmm. um, we're in a really, this has got to be the most destabilizing time since, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Thinking about the body too, I'm really interested the more I look at these, just they are so somatic and um, specific and detailed and make you think of the body and then they take that all away because it's not the body. And it's, but there's similar um, abstract configurations, you know? I could see like freckles or skin pores on that, but it's, it's really just glass. So it's interesting like how the idea of, of who we are as bodies or as people or as figures or characters. It feels very wide open looking at this. And I think we're in this moment of flux, you know? But it's like you're, you're doing all this and you're making us think about technology and yeah. then you're bringing the craftsman's hand or the craftsperson's hand mm -hmm. into it again to kind of bring us back to, you know, the most ancient <laughs> we, way of being embodied. You know, it seems important for me that the painted image is beautiful. I don't know why I still feel like I want these to be beautiful, but I gotta tell you something. I, I look at these Picasso paintings from, well, the 50s and 60s have been on my mind for a while now. You look at the paintings, you just go, I can't believe this is done this way. I mean, it's just, it's so freeing. It's made as quickly as he could possibly be thinking. And he toys with, here it might be beautiful, here it's gonna be kind of ugly. Well, that's very, I mean, if you paint, that's really liberating and very difficult to allow oneself to think in terms of making. I don't know very many people who think that way. Like literally, like paintings I go see and they go, they thought, I'm gonna make it beautiful, look incredibly beautiful here and here it's gonna be not so beautiful. And when you say not so beautiful, do you mean in the subject matter or the way it's painted? The way it's painted, okay. the how of it. So you're saying, just to be clear, you're saying that it's hard as a painter to let yourself go there to the not beautiful? Right now, for me personally, Yes, but I've pulled in some direction this way because it's a polarity of a way of making that I think is provocative in conjunction with the beautiful. That's why these paintings are so thin. I've been thinking about those Brock paintings that are so thin, they're Cubist paintings. And a year before he was painting these thick, luscious, fovous landscapes. 
if they have faces, which they, they often don't or it's disrupted, the expressions, the features are always a little bit unsettling. Like that one there looks a little perturbed or, you know, there's, it's like you feel an emotion. There's like a psychology to it. He's having a moment. She's having a moment, yeah. Well, here he's, you know, this, uh, he's kind of this hapless, he's not the brightest bulb on the porch. He's a little goofy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a vulnerability. It's almost like what you were saying about being an artist and having to fail all the time. And it takes a certain kind of person to be willing to do that and to be that vulnerable. Definitely. And these I, figures definitely have that feeling. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, like two years of like these ideas are now like really like vivid because yeah. they're here, but they're still swimming around. It's been really fun to talk to you. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks Thoroughly so much. Enjoyed it. So great to have discussion in the studio rather than talk radio. Really been a great day. <laughs> this episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 